This is a CBC Podcast. Every morning, my Shomas hopped in his boat. Shomas means grandfather in Anishinaabe one. And he'd journey across the lake just to pick up the Toronto newspaper, which he read religiously. My dad read the papers, too, with his breakfast. We lived off-reserve, so he got the Globe and Mail and the Peterborough Examiner delivered to our door. Good morning, I'm Peter Zosky. This is Morningside. My mom, she loved listening to news on the radio. We'll meet the coach of that marvelous women's field hockey team, and in hour three, Georgia, the lyrical diarist of the Canadian North. Finally this morning... When I was a rug rat driving her crazy, Peter Zosky was her lifeline to the outside world. Update with Milton Nash. Good evening. Severe earthquakes jolted cities and towns in Chile and caused fearful damage... As I got older, I joined my folks at night watching the National... A major winter storm with high winds, blowing snow, freezing rain, and just plain rain has shut down most of central Canada. Vicki Russell reports. This is what southern Ontario woke up to. Maybe that's why it's always felt special that I became a journalist for CBC News. And that's National Update for tonight. For CBC News, I'm Nolton Nash. The power and privilege of talking to you our listeners from coast to coast to coast has never been lost on me. But after 25 years, I've decided to step away from the mic for a new job teaching the next generation of journalists. This is my last show. My partners in crime, Tanera and Julia, insisted on playing one of my older docs. We chose one about things close to my heart, Indigenous languages and the land. So, here we go. I'm Duncan McHugh, and this is a hell of a story. So there's um, the plant that has uh, milk that we use to get rid of uh, warts. Today, I'm on a medicine walk. Oh, and then this one. This is one of my favorites. Um, is a dogwood. And uh, the dogwoods we use to help with arthritis. My guide, Joe Pidwanaquit. 30-year-old Anishinaabe from Wikwemekong First Nation with a big, long, black ponytail trailing down his back. Um, uh, the gooseberries, they're real pokey, uh, ripening soon. Are the berries edible? Oh, yeah. They did hurt a little. <laughs> it looks like, the berry looks like a medieval mace. Yeah, it does look like a mace. That's exactly what it looks like. 
We're on a trail through a hardwood forest near Peterborough, Ontario. And Joe is a bit of a walking encyclopedia and Anishinaabe one dictionary. Oh, and then Ash, too. Ash is uh, Boyak. Boyak, or Wisagak for black ash. That's a really important uh, women's medicine and a medicine to repel rattlesnakes. Just over here, there's another, um, it's called prickly ash in a common name. Gawkamish, we call it, northern prickly ash. And that one has uh, little fruits on it that, um, it's in the same family, Xanthoxylum is the same family as Szechuan peppers. So these are Nishnava Szechuan peppers. <laughs> nice! <laughs> <laughs> One after another, he rhymes off medicinal and food qualities of plants and trees. He walks slowly, because for him, a walk in the woods is almost overwhelming. My mind is going crazy of just all of the um, relationships and connections and knowledge that is uh, understandable just right here. It's really incredible. What's also pretty incredible is how Joe learned all this stuff. It's a story that starts not with plants, but classical guitar. You see, school wasn't Joe's strong point. My entire academic career has just been just garbage. And like begging to pass English and math on, in my fifth year of high school. It just didn't fit my learning style. I just couldn't do it. And just because I barely passed anything, I, I had a lot of trouble getting into any post-secondary institution. He barely graduated, but to keep his family happy, he went to college to study classical guitar. That's where he met a girl and fell madly in love. And so when I knew I wanted to keep my wife or my girlfriend at the time, uh, I knew that I had to make my girlfriend fall in love with my family so that she stays with me, not just because of me, but because of my family. <laughs> and uh, my grandma just knows how to tug on those heartstrings. Joe's grandma was named Takla Pheasant, and the young lovebirds started spending more and more time with her, listening to her stories about the old days when she would walk through the woods with Joe's great-grandmother, collecting medicine plants. It's crazy to understand that my grandma was raised and raised most of her kids without access to a hospital. So when it comes to sickness and injury, she had to know what medicine to use. To me, that was just ridiculous. Like we have hospitals and hospitals on wheels and, and she raised her kids with plants. I just thought it was crazy. And so those are the stories that I would always ask. And, it, and my, my wife was interpreting it as, I am interested in plants, which I, I really technically wasn't at the time. And so, yeah, just spending that time with my grandma, we kind of realized that we were gathering knowledge. It wasn't just cool stories. We were gaining a repertoire. She would name a plant. Oh, that's, uh, that's a medicine for your bones. Or she would talk about, uh, we'd say, hey, you know, people ask them about lung medicine. Do you, do you know anything uh, for lung medicine? Oh, ah, uh, wincicans. 
that's um she was just recapitulating everything that she heard from her mom her whole life uh when her mom was ranting and ruminating on all of those plants medicinal gifts as she walked through the forest and she was just yeah just remembering what her mom was saying about all of that stuff and passing that on to me she named most of the plants in her first language Anishinaabemowin which made it tough for Joe who spoke Anishinaabemowin as a child but stopped when he went to school I remember one time I asked her oh, if there's a medicine everyone should have everyone should know about and be harvesting picking on a regular basis and she said oh it was one uh, that we always had galkagebogons it's called everyone always had galkagebogons because it helps with like aches you know when you get a virus or an infection you get aches and pains uh, that that come with the fever she said go and find it oh i said oh what what's its english name <laughs> and she says uh, i don't know this nishnovimskike does not have english names i don't think she says kagebogons uh, that's a nishnovim medicine we, only we have that so i thought oh okay well there's a little bit of a language barrier here so i would ask her to describe it and she would say oh it's short and uh, it has green leaves on uh, and the leaves are dark <laughs> and me and my wife would have to go out and find it sometimes we would spend weeks walking and um until that we we came across plants that fit the description that she would give us and you'd bring them back to her yeah then we would bring them back to her and she would say no <laughs> uh or she would say yes that's it joe and his then girlfriend who did indeed become his wife started driving deep into the bush to find the medicine plants and bring them back to grandma i could almost show her anything and she would know what it is i brought her leaves from like 30 40 different species of trees like a deck of cards i had a deck of leaves and she would grab all of them she knew every single one by name and so it was a really special position for me only now do i realize like what i was sitting in front of when she would be describing the names of these plants that could have very well been something that you know words that haven't come out of her mouth in 65 years but learning from her took on a new urgency when three of wikwim kong's treasured elders passed away in a few short months all valued keepers of traditional plant knowledge to lose bang 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 just like that that was really really hard and just unimaginable amounts of knowledge lost that maybe and as far as i know now are irrecoverable what was that like for you like what was the impact on you that was the beginning of absolute just relentless motivation and inspiration that uh regardless if this is my chosen path or not this is something that needs to be done joe dropped out of college he understood instinctively how precious his grandma's plant knowledge was and what was at stake if it was lost we know that we are losing species very rapidly and that we're losing uh populations of wildlife at an unprecedented rate it is not so well known that there is a parallel crisis going on with the world's human cultures and that we are losing 
languages and therefore we will be losing cultures equally rapidly. That's Jonathan Lowe, a conservation biologist based in Canterbury, England. Several years ago, he started investigating the global connections between species diversity and language diversity. One of the extraordinary things that really struck me is that if you look at a a map of the distribution of, of languages around the world and you compare it with maps that show the distribution of mammal species or, or bird species, you see an extraordinarily similar picture. The hotspots of linguistic diversity in so many cases coincide with hotspots of biological diversity. And it, and it really struck me that whatever it is that has led to the, the amazing diversity of languages in many parts of the world is the same evolutionary forces that have led to the extraordinary biological diversity that, that we see. And I, I started to see that almost that languages and species were the same kinds of things. They're both products of evolution. They both show this extraordinary diversity. And they are both facing this critical threat. In fact, the world's languages and animal species have declined over the past four decades at roughly the same rapid rate. About 30% have disappeared. It's a dual extinction crisis. As people have adapted culturally to living and surviving in, in all these different habitats, a tremendous amount of knowledge of all of the local resources is built up. And that knowledge is essentially known, encoded, if you like, within their indigenous language. And if a language starts to, to be lost, very often that knowledge as well is lost. The traditional ecological knowledge, you know, once gone, it, it's gone. <laughs> Just as a endangered species that goes extinct is, can't come back again. The linguists are saying that, that we may lose anywhere from 50 to 90 percent of the languages by the end of, of the century. Uh, what does that mean for the environment? It's a double sadness to lose all that linguistic diversity. I, I think that trying to protect the environment and trying to protect the cultural diversity do go hand in hand, and we should be doing the two things together. If we want to protect forests and manage them in a way that's uh, sustainable into the future, I think conservationists should learn from the, the practices and, and the experience and the knowledge of indigenous peoples who've lived in the forests for thousands and thousands of years. And if we lose those cultures, we lose the understanding of, of ways in which those forests can be managed and protected. This one right here um, is Jack in the Pulpit. So. Um, we call it Josh Chagomin. Josh Chagomin is describing the stem that holds the berries. Min is a berry. Josh Chagomin is the berries that pierce through the center of the plant. Are there, are there medicinal qualities to Josh uh, Chagomin? Yeah, the main thing that we remember it being used for is uh, thrush. So you could see that sort of identity exemplified in the pulpit portion, the flower of the plant, having those white lines going down the throat of the plant. And so when we look inside of our children, you could see those white lines of thrush in their mouth going down their throat. 
Teaching about medicine plants has become Joe's life work. He and his wife started a small business called Creator's Garden, giving workshops to First Nations about plant medicine. Tending to the Creator's Garden, that is our job. That's what we learn about and teach about. As we're walking through the forest and getting nearer to the highway, Joe spots yet another plant he wants to show me a patch of large, velvety, heart-shaped leaves. So this is uh, Nimepin, wild Canadian ginger, or Asylum canadensis. Uh, it's um, well, just that, it tastes just like ginger. Uh, and it's in a lot of our major medicines to help with the cardiovascular repair after an infection or something like that. So it's really, really important medicinally. But um, Nime Pin, this is the most beautiful name because Nime is a sturgeon and Pin is a potato. So Nime Pin is a sturgeon potato. And so what that name is remembering is the fact that, according to the fossil record, sturgeon used to be able to crawl on shore my grandma used to say they used to crawl around and eat that plant, so that's why we call it Nimepin. But going back to the fossil record, that ability was removed from the sturgeon almost 500,000 years ago. And so they're remembering this incredibly old history like as if it happened yesterday. Back in the day, Joe says, Anishinaabe fishermen rubbed Nimepin on their nets to attract sturgeon. A few years ago, Joe shared this knowledge with fish scientists working to restore threatened sturgeon stocks. We got one research organization who, utilizing this method, caught more sturgeon in two nets than in four years of combined research. So now we're able to generate enough data to be able to manage the at-risk status of, of lake sturgeon. What's more, Joe explains, patches of Pen need to be harvested in order to thrive. This plant is one of those plants that require human intervention in order for it to maybe even just survive. And so you generally will only find this in places where it was planted and tended to. If we leave it alone and forget about it, it will disappear. And so if we want to keep this medicine that's powerful for our ability to eat, and now maybe even save a species, and then important for its medicinal value and the flavor it imparts on our food, making eating a much more pleasant experience. Uh, This plant is super important for our ability to live here. We need it, and it needs us. So we have to come here and be responsible for that and, and play our role in this ecosystem. It's a way of thinking that one environmental expert believes contains solutions to our climate crisis. My name is Deborah McGregor, and I am Anishinaabe from Whitefish River First Nation, or Birch Island. I am also an associate professor at York University at Osgoode Hall Law School in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. And I'm also the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Environmental Justice. The broader world of climate assessment and climate science looks at climate change as being very much a kind of physical, chemical process that's happening. And it's true. It is that. Things aren't looking great in any international or national climate change assessments. Things are getting worse. That's pretty well what every single assessment report is saying. And 
And that's because of the systems that created the problem in the first place, they're not working. A transformation hasn't occurred. So the conventional understanding of sustainable development is basically how, do, how can we sustain the earth so we can keep taking and consuming in the way that we are for future generations? That's not the way Anishinaabe think about that. <laughs> what Anishinaabe think and believe in our understanding in terms of our relationship with the earth is every day we get up and we don't think about what we're going to take, we think about what we're going to give. What's our gift going to be back to the earth so the earth can flourish? So that's a completely different way of thinking. How do the the values that are embedded in a language like Anishinaabe Moen uh, encourage a different relationship to the land? It recognizes the land as living and probably more startling to a lot of people as having its own agency. It's embedded within languages to recognize that the world has a say, the planet has a say, and and that it is trying to tell us something. Deborah McGregor maintains the act of strengthening and revitalizing Indigenous languages is not only good for Indigenous communities, it may be the best hope for beating the planet's climate crisis. The language itself is nature land-based. And so that's where you're going to learn about, okay, how do we ensure that the medicines are going to flourish? How do we ensure that the wildlife is going to have fresh water, that the fish are going to be taken care of? That's what's embedded within the languages because that's how people live. This one tree right beside us, Uyghubish, is uh, basswood, Telia americana. And, uh, and Uyghubish is, um, Uyghub is rope. And uh, Uyghubish or Uyghubamish is the tree that we used to make rope. As much as Joe has learned about Anishinaabemwin and plants, there are some he can't name. His grandma passed away a few years ago, and the harsh reality is, Anishinaabemwin is an endangered language with fewer and fewer fluent speakers. Not knowing a name of a plant is devastating, and and it really haunts me. <laughs> it it haunts me because. Uh, um, we don't have my grandma anymore to be able to show these plants. <laughs> and it haunts me because everywhere that we go, like I work in over 100 different Indigenous communities and over 150 different institutions throughout Ontario, throughout our territory. And everywhere I go, I have a small list of plants I don't know how to address by name. And I ask everywhere. And I haven't got an uh, inkling of advice or memory of what that was. So it's actually terrifying because uh, the potential of uh, possibly never being able to recover a name of a plant, sometimes we see that with the use of it as well. That plant may never be able to exercise a gift that it has, potential that it has. Still, he takes heart in tireless efforts by Anishinaabemwin teachers to keep the language alive. He himself sees a hunger amongst Indigenous communities to reconnect with plant knowledge, even during the pandemic when he was forced to offer workshops online. There is no substitution for time out on the land, ever. And um, my sessions online are dedicated to providing the motivation and inspiration for individuals and participants to begin their own learning journey. That's not so much about practical content at all. There's, there's no substitution for land-based learning when it comes to uh, understanding medicine. 
To understand land as medicine is to have enough knowledge to live what the Anishinaabe call mino bamadzuin, or the good life. The root word that we use to describe somebody who is strong or resilient is oadzuin, that is knowledge. Knowledge is necessary for resiliency, and the expression of that knowledge is our culture and is us out on the land doing what we're supposed to do. And and I can't imagine when that knowledge is being expressed and is in action on the land, what that does for human health and for the health of the land. It's just really a, a beautiful thought to think about. That documentary by me with lots of help from Zoe Tennant and Joan Weber. And that's it for this week's Hell of a Story. The amazing Phelan Johnson is going to take over the host chair for the next little while, so you're in good hands. The show is produced by Tanera McLean and Julia Poggle of the CBC Audio Document. I'm Duncan McHugh. Thank you so much for listening. Miigwech bezindayik. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.